If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 18. That's where we're going to be today. <clears throat> uh, my sermon is a defined length, so I'll just talk faster. Um, but uh, we, uh, we're glad that you're here today. I'm, I'm, I've been going through the life of Christ chronologically. And so, uh, as we said before, in your bulletin, there's a little bulletin handout, a little insert. You can fill in some blanks. You can also text questions at the end of uh, text questions throughout the service. I do have to say, uh, we got a question last week, and I was running really late, um, and I, uh, because we had a baptismal service, which was a wonderful celebration, uh, but I was running behind, and so I really wasn't able to give it a very good answer. Uh, so if you texted that question, it was about um, the Lord's Prayer and temptation, and so I'll, I apologize for not giving you a good response to that. It was a very quick, quick kind of response because of time. Um, I'll, I'm working on uh, a, a better response for, for that, so um, just bear with me. But we do encourage you, you guys always ask great questions, and uh, as, as we're wrestling and walking through this text together, um, so Matthew chapter 18 is where we are today. Uh, today's message is entitled, Who's the Greatest? And uh, so let me set the stage really quickly for you. Um, for, for this interaction between Jesus and his disciples. If you back up one chapter, Matthew 17, Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have seen Jesus be transfigured. The word there is metamorphosis. He, trained, he changed. He uh, shined like the sun in their very eyes. They were very afraid that Moses and Elijah appear and uh, have a conversation with Jesus. So this is a very... Uh, freaky moment for them. I mean, I don't know what the right adjective to use. This is something they've never seen before, um, and they've seen some wild things, um, but this is something that they had never seen before. Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus, talking with Jesus, and Peter, James, and John are there witnessing it. They come off the mountain, and uh, they are met with a crowd. They're met with the disciples that Jesus didn't take with him, and they're met by a father who had a demon-possessed boy. And so the father approaches Jesus and he says, Jesus, the disciples, my, my son is cruelly demon-possessed and your disciples couldn't cast the demon out. So can you do something? And so uh, Jesus rebuked the demon. The boy was healed instantly. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and they said, why couldn't we cast this demon out? Jesus replied, you have little faith. You don't really believe that God can and will do the things that you're asking him to do. And I think there's a rebuke right there for all of us Pentecostals because we believe in the God of the impossible. Amen? We believe God did amazing works. He performed miraculous healings. He did mighty wonders. We sing about it. We talk about it. We tell people about it, but when it comes to believing for the impossible in our own life, sometimes we're just like the disciples. We've seen God do the miraculous in others, but we hesitate when it comes to believing for the miraculous in our own lives. Sometimes we don't really believe God can and will do what we're asking him to do, especially if it's something for ourselves. If somebody says, hey, would you pray for me? Man, we'll stand in the gap. We'll pray. We'll fast. We'll intercede. But when it comes to a situation that we're dealing with ourselves, we sometimes 
hesitate to believe that God can or will do what we're asking him to do. So right after Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, shining like the sun, that Peter, James, and John did not shine like the sun. They were just witnesses of it. And demonstrating that Jesus is clearly the Son of God in the presence of Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, representing the prophets. And then right after Jesus comes down off the mountain and casts a demon out of a boy that the disciples could not cast out, comes this conversation that we're looking at today. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. It says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now Matthew's phrasing of this uh, almost seems like it was an innocent question. It almost sounds like they were genuinely curious. Are angels the greatest in God's kingdom? Are the Jews the greatest? Are the prophets the greatest? But when th- this story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Mar- uh, I'm sorry, Luke's telling of the story reveals the motive behind the question. The disciples had been arguing about which one of them is the greatest. Now, just get the irony of this moment for a second. They have not done the things that Jesus has asked them to do. He's rebuked them. You could calm the storm yourselves. You could cast demons out yourselves. He sends them out to do the works that he's doing, and they don't do it. They can't do it every single time that Jesus has, you know, kind of gives them a little rope. They, they don't do what Jesus is asking them to do, and then they decide the best use of their time is to argue which one of them is the greatest. They haven't done anything Jesus told them to do. It's the most pointless, ridiculous argument in the world. And so Jesus, the patience that Jesus has with these disciples is absolutely astounding. It's like having, let's just say you've got 12 teenagers in your house. First of all, you should be down at this altar every Sunday asking God for prayer and strength and patience and peace. But let's say you've got 12 teenagers And those 12 teenagers are told what to do. Let's say, take out the trash, do the dishes, everybody's got a chore, everybody does something. And you leave, you you go visit a friend for lunch, and you give them, everybody do your chore while I'm gone. You come back, and none of them has done anything except they're sitting around saying, well, I think I'm the most handsome. Well, I think I'm the smartest. I think you're all dumb because none of you have done anything I've told you to do. And that is the same as Jesus having to deal with these disciples. He's told them what to do. They don't do it. And yet they still argue, I'm the greatest. Simon said, well, you know, Jesus called me the rock. So that clearly means I'm the greatest. Well, two minutes later, he also called you Satan. So I kind of think that disqualifies you from being the greatest. Judas said, well, Jesus lets me hold the money. And if you know anything about organizational structures, the secretary treasurer of the organization is a really important person. Yeah, well, two minutes ago, you were taking money out of the corn purse, so I think that disqualifies you. On and on and on they went about who was the top dog in the group. 
And all it ended up proving was they had no idea how the kingdom of God really works. The disciples had become so preoccupied with the pecking order of the group, they had lost sight of why Jesus had come in the first place. Instead of looking for a place of service, they sought positions of advantage where others had to serve them. And it can be easy for us to do the same, to lose our eternal perspective and to compete for promotions or status in the church. Why do Christians have uh, why do Christians sometimes have such a difficult time getting along with each other? One uh, poet offered, uh, 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 wrote a poem. One author shared a poem addressing this very thing. It's in your bulletin insert. It says, To live above with saints we love will certainly be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. The passage This passage is where Jesus teaches these disciples about a much-needed lesson they needed to learn immediately, humility. So the first lesson we see in your bulletin, you've got an insert, you can fill it out. The first thing we see is the need for humility, the need for humility. They were all caught in the trap of who's the greatest, who's the most important. When when people invite me over to their home, they're like, uh, you know, when we're going to eat dinner, when we go out to lunch, they all look at me. We can't eat until you pray. And I say, I've been praying all week. Why don't you pray? Let's hear your prayer life. Let's hear you cry out to God on behalf of this meal. Like, I, look, I am not the, I don't consider myself the greatest, okay? And even if I did, some of you in the congregation are quick to let me know I'm not. So thank you. That's not a spiritual gift, brother. <laughs> we, they were so caught in the trap of who's the greatest, who's the most important, who gets the final word. And Mark's account of the story says that the disciples had been arguing along the road from, or on the road to Capernaum about who is the greatest. So Jesus asked him, what, what were you guys arguing about on the road? And they didn't, they didn't want to answer because they were too embarrassed to say. It's kind of like when you catch your teenagers doing something you know they're not supposed to do. They're like, hmm, what were you doing? And they're like, what did you hear? <laughs> Especially because they've been with Jesus long enough to know that this kind of an argument is pointless. Jesus has told them on several occasions already he came to seek and save the lost. He came not to be served as a king on a throne in Israel, but he came to serve everyone in the whole world through his death as the lamb who would be slain. So the king of the universe, the word of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, did not come to be served, but to serve. Yet this is the argument that the disciples are having. The disciples let Jesus' statements go in one ear and out the other. They weren't thinking about his impending trip to Jerusalem to suffer and die that Moses and Elijah had just discussed with Peter, James, and John. They were only thinking of themselves, so much so that they argued about it while Jesus was in earshot. Selfishness and disunity are constant stains on the Christian faith by Christian people. 
We have a tremendous need for humility because pride is always trying to lead us to sin and destruction. Lucifer fell because of pride. I will raise my throne above the throne of God. Adam and Eve sinned because of pride. We sin because we think we know better than God does about the action we want to undertake, assuming there will be no consequences for the actions. Despite God repeatedly telling us that sin will lead us to death. When Christians are living for themselves and not living for others, there will be conflict, there will be division. In Mark's account of the story, this is where Jesus tells them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, the servant of all. God's kingdom is not set up by people who have the most servants, but by people who are the greatest servants. Jesus demonstrated this fact by his next action and his next words. Matthew 18, 2 through 6, it says, And calling to him a child, he put in him... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. There is a whole lot to unpack there. But the the second thing that we see is the example of humility. The example of humility. The disciples wanted Jesus to name who was the greatest among them. Instead, he brought them, he brought before them a little child. True humility is the balance between thinking less of yourself than you should and thinking more of yourself than you should. We read scriptures that tell us we are children of the Most High God. We are sons and daughters of the King, but we also read scriptures that tell us the last shall be first and the first shall be last, and that humility turns us into last place people. So the key is not to think less of yourself, but to think of yourself less. The key is not to think less of yourself, not to demean yourself, not to say something about yourself that belittles what God has said about you. The key is to think, le- to think of yourself less. Think of yourself less often. You are who God says you are, but we're not to let that go to our heads. If you think of yourself less, you're not pushing your wants, your desires, your agendas You're not behaving selfishly out of pride. You're not placing yourself above others. True humility doesn't deny the gifts that God has given you. It seeks to use them for His glory above our own glory. Jesus uses a child to demonstrate true humility. And a good child... Pay attention, kids. A good child trusts his parents, depends on them rightly, and understands they are under someone else's authority. They ask permission. They ask permission. They ask permission (laughs) to do things because 
They can't see all the obstacles, all of the pitfalls in the path that's ahead of them. Now, not every child behaves this way, obviously. So the point is to be childlike and not childish. The disciples wanted to know who was the greatest among them in his kingdom. And Jesus warned them that if they were not humble, they wouldn't even enter his kingdom. They had to change their outlook on greatness or they were at risk of losing access. And when it comes to children, some of the strong statements Jesus makes about children, it's dangerous for us to look down on children because God values them so highly. This is one reason why we value our children's ministry so highly. If our nursery workers, our preschool teachers, and our children's ministry staff do their job effectively, those kids grow up and move into our youth department as discipled teenagers who know how to worship, who know why we worship, and are learning how to be servant leaders. So when our children's ministry is effective, that makes our youth pastor's job a whole lot easier. Because when, then when they graduate from high school and they move into adulthood, it makes the senior pastor's job a whole lot easier because they've been discipled and they've been poured into since the day they went into the nursery. This is why children's ministry in this church is so important because it's not babysitting. It is discipleship on a level that children can grasp. And in our day and age, when stories about child, child abuse and child neglect are so common, we must not miss the warning that Jesus offers at the end of his statement. It would be better to drown yourself in the sea than to abuse a child and face God's wrath on judgment day. Chew on that statement for a bit. Since Jesus is the lost, uh, I'm sorry, since Jesus is the good shepherd, he pursues lost sheep. He came to seek and save them. How much more does he care and pursue lost and wounded and hurting lambs? And when the good shepherd finds the wolf that injured one of his little lambs, they will feel his wrath. Jesus concluded his statements on humility in Matthew 18, 7 through 9. It says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two, or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. These verses, point number three, we see the cost of humility. The cost of humility. This statement by Jesus is often dismissed as hyperbole. Hyperbole is just a fancy English word, grammar word, over-exaggeration. Jesus couldn't possibly mean that. He doesn't expect people to actually cut off parts of their body or gouge out their own eyes. Well, probably not. Because harming your physical body does not change the condition of your heart. You can still have a sinful heart with one arm. 
You can still have a sinful heart with one leg or one eye or no eyes or no legs or no arms or just a torso. You can still have a sinful heart. If you have a heart, it could still be sinful, regardless of any other body parts you do or do not have. So don't start, sharp, don't start sharpening your cleaver to chop off an arm or a leg just yet. Uh, but also don't dismiss his message because you dismiss his methods. If your smartphone causes you to sin, it's better to enter heaven having missed out. I'll use that word in quote, missed out. You're not really missing out on much of anything. It's better to enter heaven having missed out on all the social media aspects of your smartphone by ditching it than to enter hell with it firmly still in your grasp. Whatever causes you to stumble is not worth holding on to because it will always try to drag you down. Jesus said the temptations come. Stumbling blocks are present. But we shouldn't throw up our hands and just give in to them. Well, I'm tempted again. I guess I need to go ahead and give in to it so the temptation can pass. No, we shouldn't give up and say, I guess that's just the way I am. No, our goal is to follow Christ, to know Christ, to exalt and magnify Christ and be like Christ. Don't surrender to your temptations. Surrender to Jesus Christ. Humility begins with self-examination, and it ends, and it leads to self-denial. So first we examine ourselves, and then we are able to deny ourselves. I told you a couple weeks ago, Jesus' easy three-step pattern for being a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's really easy. Easy to remember? Well, not so easy to do, but it, that's still what you're called to do. In this order, deny yourself. Well, that doesn't sound like fun at all. It's not. But it's what we're called to do. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Oh, this just gets better and better. Take up your cross and follow me in that order. We don't follow him and then get to skip any other steps or ignore any other steps. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's only after you've denied yourself, only after you've died to yourself, that you really learn how to follow Jesus. So we examine ourselves with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then we deny ourselves. Ask the Holy Spirit to begin to perform spiritual surgery on your heart. And if your heart doesn't change, your behavior will never change. A lot of our Christians have, have such a backwards view of how to live an overcoming life. Like, if I could just get this behavior under control. No. Your behavior will never be under control if your heart's not right. It's the same thing of being saved. If, if, I could just, if I could stop sinning, then I'd be worthy enough to get saved. No. That's completely backwards. He saves us because we're unworthy, because we can't do the work ourselves. He saves us and begins to do the work in our heart that reveals the nature and the life of Christ. We don't have the nature and life of Christ before we get saved to earn salvation. Just the same in your discipleship journey. You can't clean yourself up. You can't quit these behaviors if your heart is not right. Get your heart right, and the behaviors will follow. 
If you get your heart right, you won't want to do those things. You won't want to. It's, it's uh, you know, the, a great example is in a, in a healthy marriage. If you love your spouse, you would not want to do things to hurt your spouse. I thought I'd get a lot more amens out of this. I don't know. Maybe we do a little marriage counseling seminar. If you lo- I'll give you an opportunity again, spouses. If you love your spouse, you wouldn't want to do anything to hurt your spouse. Much better. Much better. Especially because most of you are sitting next to your spouse. If your spouse didn't say amen very loudly that first time, I have reasonably, uh, reasonable hourly rates for marriage counseling. Mm. If your heart doesn't change, your behavior will never change. But if your heart is tuned to the heart of the Father, you won't want to sin against God. So you remove stumbling blocks that present themselves as, way, uh, as ways to sin. Humble people put Christ first, others second, and themselves last. So when, and I do it too, I mean, guys, I was born in church. Like, my mother had me, and then boom, I was in the nursery. Like, my mother gave birth to me, my dad was a pastor, and right away, like the next Sunday, I'm in church. I have been in church all my life, okay, and there's still times when I want to put myself first, and I have to check myself. Like, I am an incredibly um, uh, impulse shopper. I, 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 I see things, ooh, that looks fun. I'd like to buy that. Those impulse aisles, when you check out, have you been to Burlington? It's a conspiracy. Burlington Coat Factory, I have to walk a maze before I can go check out. And I'm like, ooh, Chocolate-covered jalapenos. I would. I don't know. Is that why is that a thing? But I need. I feel like I need it. And more earbuds. Like the we have so many earbuds. But you're like, oh, we could always use another. And there's so many things impulse about. And so when I when I have these impulses, I'm like, ooh, I, I, I want to get that. And then, but then in that moment, I feel like it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells me, um, why don't you buy something for your wife? I was like, ooh, all right, all right, yeah. I like being married more than I like being, you know, having a lot of possessions. So I, I buy something for my wife. And, and sometimes I, buy some, I want something for myself, uh, but I'll buy it for her first. <laughs> Don't judge me. <laughs> There's a lot of judgment in this room right now. I kind of feel like y'all do the same thing. Especially when it gets close to, close to Christmas. Now, I'm a really good gift giver, so there's that. Um, so my goal every Christmas, every birthday, every Mother's Day, if, if there aren't tears streaming down her cheeks, I have not done my job effectively. Because <clears throat> not uh, she's, like, really happy. She likes the gift. It's very thoughtful. So, but sometimes I have to check myself. So even when you're a mature Christian, even when you've been saved for a long time, self is always trying to put it, itself in front. Pride is always trying to rise up. You have to continually say, Lord, examine my heart. I don't want the root of any bitterness, any sin in my life. Perform that surgery and rip it out. If you want to be great, 
in God's kingdom, humility is the key that opens the gates. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, humility is the key that opens the gates. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. We didn't have any questions submitted that I'm aware of. Um, So let me share with you just some final thoughts. We often miss out on the, we, we often miss the irony of Jesus inviting a child into the midst and using this child to illustrate uh, a spiritual lesson. And the reason I say that is because in Jewish society, children were often treated as second class citizens. They offered no contribution to society, so they weren't treated the same way as Jewish men were treated. Likewise, the church must have that same outlook. We must pursue those people who are treated like second-class citizens. We must pursue people who cannot make a contribution to our church. We must pursue them and show them the love of Christ and the intrinsic value that they have. Some of the questions we often get asked when we go into the juvenile detention center is some of these kids say, why are you coming here? What's your motivation? Do you want us to come to your church? And we tell them, no, not necessarily. We're not, I mean, we would love for you to come to our church, but our goal is to just invest in you, love on you, and encourage you that when you leave here, you find a church that you can worship in. If you're Roman Catholic, go to a Catholic church, get plugged in, learn, start reading the Word of God, and and learn everything you can. If you're Methodist, if you're Lutheran, you know, we're not trying to proselytize and make everybody assembly of God. We encourage them they can always find a welcome home at Friendship Church, regardless of their past because every one of us in our room has a past and not any of us would want us to pass around a microphone and share our past it's dead it's buried it was before christ and so we encourage these kids when you get out of here find a local church get plugged in and uh, learn and be discipled uh, because that's our heart that's our desire um and so we want to we want to protect people we want to encourage people um, that can't necessarily benefit us. We don't go to minister to people only because they can benefit us. We want to minister to people because they can. Um, Jesus didn't only minister to the rich people and say, I need some people to bankroll this ministry. He went to the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the beggars, and he healed the lame and the sick and people who could not offer him anything. It wasn't what they offered him. It was what he was going to offer them. And that's our motivation as well. We have the gospel entrusted to us, and we're going to take it to those that need it. When we live a life of true humility, and we put Christ first in everything, never looking down on someone because of their age or their lack of spiritual maturity, we are in a great place to see God do wonderful things. Most people have never heard the name of a guy named Edward Kimball. Why would you? He was nothing more than a Sunday school teacher to a group of hyperactive little boys. But Kimball prayed for those boys regularly that God would do something mighty and powerful in their life. One of those young men that Kimball invested in was Dwight L. Moody, a name that you may be familiar with. He became a very powerful preacher, a very powerful evangelist. He preached all over the world. And lots of people were saved. Under Moody's ministry, a man named Wilbur Chapman was saved, who became an evangelist, preaching to thousands. 
a baseball player, had the day off. When he, when he heard Chapman was preaching nearby, he came to hear him preach. That baseball player got saved, quit baseball, and had a powerful evangelistic ministry, and his name was Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday influenced a man named Mordecai Ham, who became an evangelist. Mordecai was ministering in North Carolina, and there was a young man in town that had previously told people, I will never go hear that guy preach. I will never hear him preach. But Billy Frank, this young man, did walk into the tent. He heard the gospel. He gave his life to Jesus Christ and walked out of that tent as the man you all know, Billy Graham. In 2008, it was calculated that Billy Graham had preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to 2.2 billion people on this planet. Billions of people heard the gospel, not just because of Billy Graham, but because of the faithfulness and the humility of a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball, who taught a group of wild boys and who prayed for them. It said anyone can count the number of apples on a tree, but only God can count the number of apples in a seed. You want to do great things for God's kingdom, clothe yourself in humility, find a place to serve, and God will use you powerfully. Who knows? The next Billy Graham may be in our church nursery right now. And so I thank God for every one of our volunteers. I thank God for everyone. We pray for you just so you know. If you volunteer in our children's ministry in our nursery, we pray for you. That God would bless you because of the way you pour your life, your heart into these children. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to pray. We're going to worship for just a few moments. Father, it's all about you. It's all for you. Don't let us get caught up in making it about us. Don't let us get caught up in, in making it about what we have accomplished. I don't ever want Friendship Church to be the church that, that any pastor present or past built. I want Friendship Church to be the church that you built. That it's all about you. It's all for you and it's all about you. It's not about us. It's not about taking credit. It's not about being glorified by a denomination or by any individual. It's all about you. That Jesus, you must increase and we must decrease. That we exalt you and we magnify you and we declare how great you are. You are the reason we live. You are the reason that we worship. We love you, Lord. We're going to close our service with a worship song. You can stick around for just a few more minutes. just want you to worship with us as we calibrate our compass for this week. Whatever you may be facing, wherever God puts you this week, I want this message to ring in your heart, regardless of a bad diagnosis from a doctor, regardless of a bad notification at work, a pink slip, a a demotion notice, any bad news, any news whatsoever you might get, let this song just reverberate in your heart and in your spirit. Great are you, Lord. It's all about Him. 
And if he can be magnified in our life, in our death, in our promotion or a demotion, in a healthy body or a body that has a diagnosis, he knows where we're going to go. He knows who needs the gospel. And wherever God puts you is where he wants you to be his ambassador for Jesus Christ. Worship with us this morning as we close our service.